during a roughly 100-day period from April 7th to mid-July 1994, between 500,000 and 1 million victims were killed in the Rwandan genocide. This occurred across the country, but in one particular case, roughly 5,000 people fleeing the violence had sought refuge in the Antarama church, where they were massacred by uh, Hutu militias. This was done with machetes and clubs, and the bodies were discarded around the church and some left inside the church, right up in front of the altar sometimes. Now, aside from the overall barbarism and madness of the Rwandan genocide itself, you think, how could this happen in a church, right? Of course, the obvious is, well, these are, these were monsters. They were uh, violent people who didn't care that innocent people were seeking refuge and safety in a church. But there's a more important question, which is, what makes a church a safe place? What, what, what offers sanctuary, aside from the respect of your, maybe your enemies who say, oh, well, we won't, we won't go in there because it's a church, it's a holy place. What should make it a holy place is that bad things can't happen there. Why wasn't why didn't God send an angel down to defend the innocent, right? Well, there is an answer to this question, at least uh, in some capacity. But we have to go back to the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus, back in 341 to 270 BC. This is the Kyle Style Podcast. So what I'm talking about here is known as the problem of evil. Now, Epicurus was, again, an ancient Greek uh, philosopher there who... He'd, hey, we don't know too much about him, really. He, we have some of his writings, and we know that he was part of a school of philosophy. He was a student of Democritus, and Democritus was the first uh, sort of a, like a natural philosopher to propose uh, the atomic theory of of matter and reality so uh he postulated that reality and matter was made of atoms and uh he was correct before he ever had any instruments that would uh have allowed him to prove that but the issue with the rwandan church is one specific and very stark example of what epicurus is known for is the what is called the problem of evil. Now, this is put many different ways, and it has many different uh, sort of, uh, versions that it is is used. But uh, the one that I found that is, I think, most coherent, uh, easily coherent, is: <clears throat> Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then He is not omnipotent. Is He able, but not willing? then he is malevolent. 
Is he both able and willing, then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing, then why call him God? So essentially, if your definition of God is that God is all-knowing, he knows everything that's going on everywhere, he's all-powerful, he created the universe, he can intervene in it at any time, as he sees fit, as you sometimes see in the Bible and holy books. And is he he's willing. He 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 is all loving, he loves us, he doesn't want us to suffer, right? But there is suffering and there is evil in the world. Some sometimes in the special buildings we build in honor of of God, right? So he if he knows that there's evil and can help us, but doesn't, then he's not all-loving. If he would help us, and he can help us, but he doesn't know, then he's not omnipotent. And if he knows, and he cares, but he can't help us, then he's not all-powerful. So basically, you either have to change your definition of God to include the fact that he, it, in some sense, is unable to prevent evil. And and this is fairly obvious. <laughs> uh, he's unable to directly stop acts of evil. You know, you read about it maybe in the Old Testament, God like flooded the world to rid the world of evil people. But we haven't seen anything quite like that in a while. You know, there hasn't been a miraculous deluge or a Sodom and Gomorrah destruction, that kind of thing. So this is a this is a prob this is the problem of evil. I mean it's it's a very straightforward argument that there's all kinds of philosophical and metaphysical work around, right? That uh well God doesn't want to intervene in our free will and that kind of thing. I find some of that to, I mean, it's 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 often somewhat irrelevant uh, because you're essentially saying that the 5,000 victims in the church in Rwanda there, they deserved what happened to them or God knew and didn't care. It's, it's, it's sort of that there's some reason why God allowed them to get hacked to death with machetes and clubs. And this should this is kind of offensive. I mean it's kind of it's kind of an offensive concept that you you just it's sort of childish to try and and rationalize it. But people try. They do. They try to rationalize it and they try to um make God still work so that they can keep God in their life when there are times when it's fairly obvious that if there was a God and he cared, he, and he knew, uh, of course, he should intervene. He, he should have been able to do something to help those people. And of course, the obvious answer is that either that God is not there by the definition that's given, or 
that God doesn't care about us, doesn't know, or can't help. Or maybe that God's not there at all. Now, I wanted to bring up Epicurus because, it's, you know, starting with the Rwandan genocide thing to sort of prove a point, but Epicurus was is known for the um, the problem of evil, but there are other, he, he has other work that he's known for, okay? And Epicurus gave three conditions for happiness, right? Those three conditions are, Friends, freedom, and an analyzed life. You have to have friends to share in reality with, uh, engage in conversation, and compare ideas, and, uh, you know, to be able to attempt to sort of find, get to the truth of things. You have to be able to have people you trust. You have to have people who uh, help you feel you know, not alone, right? Like, not alone in the world, um, make help you to feel, you know, call it love, right? But also to, in some sense, be challenging to you, but also accommodating, right? Friends. You have to have freedom. Because you have to have the freedom to move, you have to have the freedom of association, you have to have the freedom to think, freedom to speak, to exercise free choice, you also need financial freedom. That's an important aspect as well. Uh, if you are uh, constantly working due to debt and money issues, then you are living less free than someone who has no debt and is not then having their decisions changed by or influenced by the fact that they have debt. Right? You have to have you know the freedom of association. You have to to find friends and to engage with those friends. You need to have the freedom to do so, regardless of what maybe their social classes, whatever their profession might be, uh, you know, their race, their age, their sexuality, whatever it is. If they you find in them a kindred spirit, you should have the freedom to associate with them and in and engage in friendship with them. I think this. I think that freedom is very important. I'd almost put it first, except that it's not necessarily the goal. It is the mechanism by which you arrive at these other elements. So, the third ingredient: an analyzed life. Now, what does that mean? So that means that you have to take the time to reflect and be self-aware about your own life. Um, Assess your strengths, your weaknesses, your mistakes, your successes. Uh, assess the people in your life. Maybe there's people you think are friends or aren't actually friends. Maybe you're not as free as you thought you were. You need to take, be able to take the time to have that self-reflection in order to kind of assess where you may be at any given time, at any given point in your life, right? And from that analysis and you know, call it a meditation or, you know, what have you. New decisions can come from that because you can then see, oh, I have a drinking problem. Oh, I have a debt problem. Uh, my, you know, maybe my girlfriend or my wife is an awful influence on me and I need to do something different with my life. Maybe I'm not happy at my job. If you just go about feeling unhappy, then you're not necessarily going to make a change. You take the time to think about what it is that you're doing. You can uh, assess your levels of addiction, uh, maybe 
codependency with others, uh, maybe just simple things, your living situation. Maybe, you know, maybe you need to go to the dentist. (laughs) Maybe maybe you're cranky because you have a cavity, but you need to, like, sit down and have a a think and have a minute to uh, assess these things. So those three conditions for human happiness I find uh, rather approachable. Um, They're certainly admirable in a in a in a in a simple sense anyway it becomes more complex of course you know the more number of people you know and uh the older you get and the more like uh you know more wealth and more different types of jobs you have and all this kind of stuff kind of starts to intrude on these things a little bit but like all things like all uh, precepts you just kind of keep it in mind and work towards having uh satisfying these three ingredients and I mean, I've I've tried to do this, and I have found that I have uh, higher levels of overall happiness. Right. So again, three ingredients for human happiness, according to Epicurus: friends, freedom, and an analyzed life. And something that I was kind of getting into just there is how one applies uh, these principles now. Epicurus also, uh, like his uh, teacher Democritus, did work around, uh, you know, physics and things about how uh, about how matter behaves and how how the kind of how the universe functions, right? And he did work with things like uh, uh, the consistency of the behavior of matter, right? And that 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 basic precept is that you know, reality is pretty consistent. It's pretty damn consistent, right? Uh, uh, Mathematics essentially works the same over the whole planet. Uh, Gravity is the same across the whole planet. And in some sense, human beings even are the same across the whole planet. Now, uh, he was able to take philosophical precepts like, you know, the uh, consistency of reality and create you know, things like the three ingredients for happiness, right? You can only have, if you have a consistent world, you can have consistent thoughts in it, and you can then have consistent behavior in it that is in accord with the the function of the natural world, right? So Epicurus also gave us, and we, again, we don't know that much about his work, but these are some of the things that have come down to us. He gave 40 principal doctrines, you know, things to live by. And I just picked out a few because there, you know, there's 40 of them. (laughs) So I liked a few of these specifically. So number eight, no pleasure is a bad thing in itself, but the things which produce certain pleasures entail disturbances many times greater than the pleasures themselves. So in some sense, that's like, Everything in moderation, right? Um, drinking in excess will cause you to have a hangover where you will then be less happy than you were when you were drunk and happy, right? Uh, there's opportunity cost. You know, you, you, you want to uh, go see a movie, but you also want to go snowboarding. You, one of those will maybe give you more happiness than the other, but you, you have to make a choice. And uh, the say you go snowboarding and you're having fun, but you break your leg. That's very much less fun than snowboarding, but it would, the snowboarding would be more fun than watching Netflix at home, which is nice and safe, right? So a balance and opportunity cost and consequences, right? 
but seeking pleasure was very much on Epicurus's uh, mind. He thought that enjoyment and pleasure were the most important things to pursue for a person, but again, within a framework that is not harmful, right? Uh, things like drugs, right? Drugs might make you feel good, but uh, they also compromise you. You become dependent and addicted. You have to pay money for them, etc., etc. So opportunity costs balance. Number 17. The just man is most free from disturbance, while the unjust is full of the utmost disturbance. So that's essentially having a clear conscience, right? Uh, if you know that your actions follow a logical and moral framework, and you are comfortable with yourself, and again, that might kind of come from that self-reflection aspect, right? You assess your decisions, and you understand that you, you at least believe that you made the right decision in any given situation. That will give you a, a clear conscience. It will make you free from disturbance, uh, meaning, you know, I, I take it to mean like stress and, and anxiety and, uh, you know, uh, avoidance, that kind of thing. While the unjust is full of the utmost disturbance, so people who are not nice, people who are not, you know, ethical, not moral, these things will weigh on them, and you you can see how, you know, things like, like murderers always remember what they've done, right? They, they always remember, and in some cases it's a very... Uh, sort of a traumatic thing to have done. Well, if they didn't do that, then they wouldn't feel that way. So <laughs> just, you know, act morally and ethically, do good, be good, and you will have a clear conscience, and that will also make you a better, happier, more effective person than people who are, you know, unethical liars, that kind of thing. It's number 22. We must consider both the ultimate end and all clear sensory evidence to which we refer our opinions. For otherwise, everything will be full of uncertainty and confusion. So I consider this like, check your facts, right? You want to know that what you are doing is in line with that which is true, right? Uh, you And you have to know when you are, you know, sort of deferring an opinion or referring an opinion to some someone or something, that that person is credible, that the that the observation was accurate, right? This is kind of like science, right? And uh, you can otherwise you can be full of uncertainty and confusion, right? So if you're listening to two completely different people and you're believing both of them, well, you kind of can't. Right? If they have opposite opinions, you can't believe both at the same time. And if you tried to, you could just be swayed by whoever's in the room. One of them is, is right if they are both in opposition to each other about maybe the same topic. Um, and this is, uh, this is also known as epistemology. Uh, I might be taking this too far, but uh, epistemology is the sort of the study of or the awareness of how we know what we know. Not what we know, but how we know it, right? So I, epistemologically speaking, 
I'm not necessarily the best source. I'm just going to undermine myself right now. I'm just a guy, and I am put up a podcast, and I try to talk about interesting things that I hope people listen to and they like. I'm not a historian. I'm not a philosopher, uh, an amateur philosopher, maybe. Uh, at least call those stoners. Uh, but epistemologically speaking, I don't really know about a lot of the topics that I'm talking about. I don't know about them in the way that, uh, you know, university people and PhDs and people of letters and what have you, uh, specialists, that they know about these things. But uh, I think they're too busy working to bother making a podcast about it. So, you know, hey, I'm doing some of their work for them. Uh, but epistemolo- uh, it, epistemology is important because it goes to, in some cases, the very deepest of what makes the world go round if you look at you know maybe an election cycle for example there is so much information it's hard to sort through it all and in trying to sort through it all there's slander there's mudslinging there's sometimes outright lies and distortions how can you tell you know i've I've called Hillary Clinton out for being a reptilian. Uh, how can I? How can you prove that she's a reptilian? Because I said so? Well, I said so because she exhibits all the traits of a reptilian. Well, how do I know what a reptilian is? Well, that's about where that ends. I don't. I was just making that up. It's a joke. But there are people who make claims nearly as, nearly as outlandish as claiming that... Uh, you know, a presidential candidate is not actually a human being. That's an extreme case. But what about, you know, just a claim? Hillary Clinton once killed somebody. In 1979, she killed a guy and hit and buried a body in the backyard and Bill Clinton helped her. How can you prove that? Well, again, that's just me making up something. But think about what the news media does with all the information that they have available and how they present it. This is where the concept of framing kind of comes in. If you're watching it, uh, Fox News, it's going to be slanted one way. You watch uh, MSNBC, it's going to be slanted another way. Uh, the sorting out this Gordian knot of facts and uh, sources and credibility and legitimacy in our democracy, falls on us as citizens. And when we don't actually do the legwork, and we don't actually engage with the information that's there and sort it out in some sense for ourselves, every individual person kind of has to sort it out for themselves, we end up in the situation where we in, that we're in now, where you have <laughs> uncertainty and confusion at very high and low levels of society right now. I mean, our economic system is confusing, uh, political system is just, you know, it's confusing, crazy circus at the moment. That, in some sense, comes from the fact, I would say, that people are not clear on all of the evidence and all of the facts and information that is at our disposal. Right? So that one's important. And the last one, to try to kind of bring this full circle here, Number 40, those who possess the power to defend themselves against threats by their neighbors 
being thus in possession of the surest guarantee of security, live the most pleasant life with one another, and their enjoyment of the fullest intimacy is such that if one of them dies prematurely, the others do not lament his death as though it called for pity. Okay, that one's a little a little tangled, so I'm going to sort it out. Those who possess the power to defend themselves against threats by their neighbors, right? Being able to defend yourself from threats, making yourself safe. Being thus in possession of the surest guarantee of security, right? They, if I can protect myself and my neighbor can protect himself, then we are both safe. We're safe from each other and we're safe from others. This is going to improve our lives because we're both safe and secure. Live the most pleasant life with one another. Again, I'm I'm chill. I'm in harmony with you. You're in harmony with me. We're not afraid because we know we have levels of security, right? And their enjoyment of the fullest intimacy is such that if one of them dies prematurely, the others do not lament his death as though it called for pity. I think what that means is that you're living fully and you're living well, so it's not uh it's it's less tragic if you died because you you were already living uh at a high level you were living as as well as a person can live right so it's not that you were working towards it you were already there you were already kind of living the dream and your death will be mourned when you pass but it's not uh it you you are fondly remembered because you were a a strong person. You were a, a person living by, you know, uh, some of these principles, right? But I wanted to bring that back around. That brings us back full circle, anyway, to where we started with the Rwandan genocide, okay? And I'm going to... In the course of doing some research on this, I found... More information that uh, will lead me to do another podcast specifically about some aspects of the Rwandan genocide that I've, uh, uh, I've become aware of. But in Rwanda, 1994, you know, 500,000 to 1 million people massacred, massacred with machetes, okay? What does this have to do with uh, number 40 there? Well... In this particular case, this was neighbors turning on neighbors. The Hutu majority turned on the Tutsi minority over some minor, uh, well, there is a history of oppression, right? There's specifics. I don't really want to get into it. But there, visibly, there are minor ethnic differences. But what happened was they had identification cards that said whether they were uh, Hutu or Tutsi. They were required to carry these IDs, and there was a a legal process that was in play that used by the Hutus to disarm the Tutsi minority of firearms and and other weapons. This is known as Decree Law Number Twelve. Uh, 1979. You must register guns, owners, and ammunition. 
Owners must justify need. Concealable guns are illegal. And there are confiscation powers held by the government. Now, this is partially why there is such an intense and strong resistance to most gun control measures here in the United States, at least, because registration, confiscation, having to justify need, this, these things contradict uh, doctrine number 40, right? Those who possess the power to defend themselves against threats. You can tell us there's not a threat, you can you can demonstrate that there's not a threat, but you don't know that there's always not going to be a threat. Threats can arise, as in Rwanda, neighbors killing neighbors, people who had known each other. In some cases, they were saving each other, of course, uh, but the government was putting out over the airwaves on the radio what to do, how to hunt down the Tutsis, and they were left essentially defenseless. This became a bit of a scandal because even the UN was there and had troops and they didn't intervene. They would have had possessed the power to defend these people, but that power rested in their hands and they were held back from saving these people. So removing from people the ability to defend themselves is, I, I hate to say, like, it's, it's incredibly problematic we want to believe that in America, say, we're safe. And for the most part, we are. Most people will really never be a victim of crime. And statistically, you just won't be a victim of violent crimes. You won't be a victim of, say, home invasions, that kind of thing. But they do happen. And having a population that is engaged in the endeavor of being good citizens and innovating and building and creating, they, in some sense, have to be trusted with weapons and firearms, etc. Because it is, again, the surest guarantee of security. Our security doesn't come from police. It comes from us all trusting one another, and us all having the power to defend ourselves, which thus creates equality. And by that practice, uh, one might be able to avoid, say, a Rwandan genocide-type situation. So, that was a little breakdown of the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus, uh, juxtaposed against the uh, horrific war crimes of the Rwandan genocide. <laughs> uh, maybe was uh, having a stretch here or there, trying to make some connections, but uh, hopefully you see what I see when you make the comparison as well. Uh, this is the Kyle Style Podcast. Thanks for listening. And I'm going to give you a couple, I'm going to try to do like a kind of double whammy sort of thing here in the next few days. So uh, I'm hoping to get more content up more quickly. And uh, thanks for listening. Uh, make sure to check out the blog. Uh, check out some of the links and everything that I'm going to include there. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, 
make sure to download this. Uh, you can always download these. I make them available to download on SoundCloud. Uh, make sure to share them around. Tell a friend. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Oh, yeah. GoFundMe. Go to the GoFundMe page. Throw me a couple dollars because I keep making content and you people are listening listening for free. You're listening on my dime, okay? And you need to you need to chip in something because you know I'm about to go shake a shake a cup on the street to try to fund this podcast. You don't want me to do that, do you? <laughs> All right. See you next time.